Assalamu alaikum brothers and sisters, I'm Sister B and welcome to Islamic Audio Bites. We'll be continuing to listen to the Crusades, the Mongol Scourge from islamiclegacy.org. Let's listen. The fall of Kutuz encouraged Mamluks in Aleppo and Damascus to declare independence of Cairo. But Baybars moved swiftly to seize both. Once the old Ayyubid lands were reunited under his authority, Baybars began a series of campaigns exacting revenge on both the Crusaders and the Mongols. A mere four years after becoming Sultan, Baybars invaded the land of the Christian king Hethum, killing a large part of the population in Sis, his capital. He attacked the environs of Acre and then Antioch, in Antioch, he had the population massacred or sold into slavery. Baybars was no Salahuddin. His military skills and physical courage were only exceeded by his ruthlessness and cruelty. Baybars sent a letter to Behemond, the prince of Antioch, who was fortunate not to be in his city at the time of its fall. To the noble and valorous knight Bohemond, prince become a mere count, by dint of the seizure of Antioch. When we left you in Tripoli, we headed immediately for Antioch, where we arrived on the first day of the venerated month of Ramadan. As soon as we arrived, your troops came out to join the battle against us, but they were vanquished, for although they supported one another, they lacked the support of Allah. Be glad that you have not seen your knights lying prostrate under the hooves of horses, your palaces plundered, your ladies sold in the quarters of the city, fetching a mere dinar apiece, a dinar taken, moreover, from your own hoard. Bohemond was a broken man. He had no option but to propose a truce. Baybars was having his revenge. He had already destroyed the kingdom of Hethum. Now Bohemond was dealt the same fate. He sent Ibn Abdul Zahir to Acre to seal an accord with the Christians. The negotiator wrote of his experience. Their king sought to temporize to obtain the best possible conditions, but I was inflexible in accordance with the directives of the Sultan. Irritated, the king of the Frange said to the interpreter, Tell him to look behind him. I turned around and saw the entire army of the Frange in combat formation. The interpreter added, The king reminds you not to forget the existence of this multitude of soldiers. When I did not answer, the king insisted that the interpreter ask for my response. I then asked, Can I be assured that my life will be spared if I say what I think? Yes. Well then, tell the king that there are fewer soldiers in his army than there are Frankish captives in the prisons of Cairo. The king nearly choked. Then he brought the interview to a close, but he received us a short time later and concluded the truce. Baybars waited for a response to his actions from the kings of Europe. Rumors began of the impending arrival of the king of France at the head of a powerful army. Then came a message that the king of France had landed further west, on the North African coast in a city named Carthage. Baybars prepared for battle. But before he could leave, a message arrived from the emir of Tunis that the king of France had been found dead in his camp, and his army had departed. It seemed that the threat from the west had subsided. The Latins in the Muslim heartland were vulnerable, 
Baybars was determined to end Crusader occupation once and for all. Although he had conquered key Christian states, Antioch, Tripoli, and Acre, there remained a formidable obstacle in his path. The Latins drew their power from a network of Crusader castles along the Mediterranean coast of Palestine and Syria. These castles served several purposes— they were military bases from which the Christians could plan and launch offensive attacks on the areas around them with relative security. They controlled the coastal regions, allowing crusader ships to come and go as they pleased. Since the Franks had undisputed control over the seas, even if the crusader states of Antioch, Tripoli, and Acre were conquered, the Franks would always be able to summon reinforcements from Europe and retake them. Of all the fortresses in the possession of the Latins, it was Crac de Chevalier that became a symbol of defiance against the Muslims. In fact, the Hospitaller knights of this castle took advantage of the terror inspired by the castle to collect taxes and wage war on local Muslim populations. To get to this castle, Baybars would have to scale the steep slopes of the mountain upon which the castle was perched. The first obstacle was a heavily fortified wall, nearly 100 feet thick, with towers built at 150-foot intervals designed to allow archers to attack in relative security. The second, a sloping wall extremely difficult to scale that completely ringed the castle. And in between these two walls was a moat of water that prevented access to the subsequent obstacles. Even if these obstacles could be overcome, the approach to the inner sanctums of the castle was through a winding corridor that frequently turned at sharp angles to prevent his army from gathering momentum against any defending knights. And at the entrances and passages of the castle, there were numerous killing zones. These were spaces in the walls and in the ceilings that allowed knights to engage the Muslims and then retreat to safety. The castle had food supplies for more than a year, and a secure source of drinking water through a well in the center of the castle. The great Sultan Salahuddin Ayubi himself had laid siege to this castle with little success. But Baybars was determined. In addition to military skill, Baybars proved to be an expert in psychological warfare and deception. He used a large number of siege engines to pummel the walls with large stones. At the same time, his engineers dug underneath the fortifications and placed firewood that they set alight. The fire would eventually work against the mortar, leading to cracking and crumbling. For four weeks, the Egyptian army attacked the fortifications of Crac de Chevalier until they reached the fourth line of defense. At that point, a messenger arrived at the castle with a letter from the Grand Master of the Hospitaller Knights with some bad news. There was no hope for a rescue force. It was better to negotiate a surrender. Baybars graciously allowed the knights to withdraw in security in exchange for the fortress. It was only after the withdrawal that the knights realized that the letter was a clever forgery. In the years that followed, Baybars dismantled the powerful network of fortresses that sustained Christian presence in the Middle East. The Franks were reduced to a string of coastal cities. They were surrounded by the Mamluk Empire. 
Having dealt with the Franks for now, Baybars turned his attention to the resurgent threat from the Mongols. To combat the Mongols, Baybars ran a sophisticated intelligence service using secret couriers and messengers that gathered information from the large population of Muslims living in Mongol territory. Many of these Muslims were motivated by religious duty to help the Sultan against their pagan rulers. Baybars even gleaned information from Muslims going to and from the Hajj and from the Bedouin of North Syria and Iraq. From this large reservoir of information, he extracted intelligence that helped him to anticipate Mongol plans of attack, the strength of their forces, and uncover enemy spies, as well as traitors working in Egypt. Ibn Abdul Zahir writes, The Sultan did not cease to take interest in the affairs of the enemy. He was on guard against their tricks and resolute in all regarding them. His messengers did not stop coming from Baghdad and other places in the eastern country in Persia. The sultan spent on them much money, because whoever travels for this matter and plays loosely with his life, there is no choice but that he should take his blood money. Without this, who would risk his life? When Allah showed the sultan this good policy, the messengers went back and forth, and they recognized in the Mongol countries those who could inform them of the Mongol secrets. From the annals of history, Baybars emerges as a somewhat mythical character with fantastic abilities. One Muslim historian relates how Baybars traveled to Rum in disguise on a spying mission. There he learnt the lay of the land, its roads, and the strength of its forces. When he returned to Egypt, he wrote to the Mongol king telling him of his travels in Rum. And as proof of his story, he left his ring in a shop. The sultan asked the Mongol king to have it returned to him, which he did. But Baybar's activities went further than intelligence collection. He ran a covert war designed to undermine Mongol supremacy and prevent or delay attack on Muslim lands. Through this covert war, Baybars had key Mongol and Frankish officials assassinated. He deliberately orchestrated misinformation campaigns to discredit their opinions. Actually, the Mongols never did trust the Muslim subjects and officials who served them. As long as a powerful Muslim state existed, the Muslim in the service of the Mongols would always struggle with their loyalty to Islam. The Mongols' suspicion only increased with the desertion of Muslim military units from their armies to Egypt. Baybars was a master at leveraging the fears of the Mongols against themselves. One such story concerns the Syrian vizier Zayn al-Din al-Hafizi, who had betrayed the Umar by deliberately undermining the will of the Sultan to resist the Mongols. The vizier had fled to the lands of the Mongols after the Battle of Ain Jalut. To eliminate this wily opponent, Baber sent false messages to al-Hafizi to give the Mongols the impression that he was a traitor and secretly in league with the Sultan. Al-Hafizi immediately showed the letters to Hulagu Khan, who believed his protestations of innocence. The vizier asked Hulagu's permission to try the same trick on the Mamluks. Hulagu agreed, but the Syrian was no match for Baybars. The Sultan sent another letter, even more incriminating and irresistibly convincing directly to Hulagu himself. The Mongol could not shake off his doubt in al-Hafizi anymore. He had the Syrian vizier and his whole family executed. 
Chapter 9 Mongol Conversion to Islam By the time of the death of Genghis Khan, there were four major divisions in the Mongol Empire. The Golden Horde of Russia and Central Asia, the Ilkhans of Persia, the Chagtais of Mongolistan, and Mongol China. The Golden Horde was given the task of subjugating Russia and Eastern Europe, which they did successfully. Its leader was the grandson of Genghis Khan, Batu Khan. Second in command was his loyal blood brother, Berke Khan. It was in the Golden Horde that Islam would first emerge. Berke converted to Islam in the most unexpected way. While he was in modern-day Kazakhstan, he came across a caravan from the Muslim city of Bukhara. He questioned the travelers about Islam. Soon after, he fully embraced Islam under Sufi Saifuddin from Khwarzm. Another of Berke's brothers converted soon after, but Batu Khan remained a shamanist. After his brother Batu died, Berke took full command of the Golden Horde in 1257. Under Berke, much of the Golden Horde accepted Islam, but others remained on their shamanist ways, or as Christians. Berke stabilized the Golden Horde and continued to expand its borders westwards, attacking Western Europe as well as the Byzantine Empire, and yet all the lands conquered by the Golden Horde enjoyed religious freedom. Berke allowed for a Christian Orthodox church to be built in his capital city of Sarai. In 1258, after Baghdad was decimated by Hulagu Khan, Berke vowed to take revenge for what his cousin had done to the Muslims. He, Hulagu, had sacked all the cities of the Muslims and has brought about the death of the Caliph. With the help of Allah, I will call him to account for so much innocent blood. In 1262, when Hulagu Khan returned to avenge the defeat of Ain Jalut, he faced the most unexpected opposition. Hulagu faced an allied force consisting of Mamluks and Burke's Mongol horde. Burke made numerous raids against Hulagu's forces, drawing them north. This eventually flared up into the first full-scale civil war in Mongol history. From the perspective of the Muslim Ummah, the internal divisions within the Mongols prevented them from focusing their attention on the Muslim Ummah. That gave valuable time to the Muslim Ummah to prepare for another full-scale battle. Chapter 10 End of the Frankish Occupation Although the Mongol horde in the Middle East had been largely decimated by Baybars, they were experiencing a resurgence under Abaka, the son of Hulagu Khan. There was much in common between father and son. Abaka, too, married a Christian wife, and he desired with all his heart to crush the Muslims. To this end, in the years 1270 and 1271, he made a series of proposals to form an alliance. Each time he approached the Franks in Europe, he received a reply that was friendly but vague. The Franks were not ready for another crusade. Saif al-Din Kalawun al-Salihi eventually succeeded Baybars in 1279. Kalawun was a Kipchak Turk like Baybars. He was known as al-Alfi, the Thousand Man, because his Ayyubid master had bought him for a thousand dinars. Al-Makrizi describes Kalawun as posing a strong and handsome figure. His primary language was Turkic. 
he never learned to speak Arabic fluently. No sooner had Kalawun declared his accession to power than he faced a challenger from Damascus. The Damascene ruler, Sunkur Alashkar, turned to the Mongols for help against Kalawun. Kalawun acted quickly to subdue Damascus before the Mongols could act, but he could not prevent the enemies of Islam from uniting once again. The crusader knights of Al-Markab joined Abaka. They were poised for a fresh invasion. This was just the right time for them, as Kalawun had just ascended to power and hadn't yet been able to consolidate himself. The Mongol army took Aleppo on the 30th of October, 1280. The horrific scenes of the first Mongol invasions were repeated once more. The population of Aleppo was put to the sword. The city was looted, and its mosque, libraries, hospitals, and shops were set alight. Only those who hid in the caves and other underground places managed to escape with their lives. In September of the following year, the Mamluks, led by Kalawun, confronted the Crusader Mongol army at Hims in Syria. The Crusader Mongol army was four times larger than in Ain Jalut. Abaka commanded one section while his brother Mangu Timur led the other. The king of Armenia, Leo III, and the hospitaller knights of Markab made up the majority of the Christians. In total, there were about 50,000 Mongols and 30,000 Christians. The Muslims of Damascus streamed into the main mosque, praying to Allah to grant the Mamluks victory. They knew that the outcome of this battle would determine the fate of themselves, their wives, and their children. On the battlefield, the Mongol princes arrayed themselves to the left of Mangu Timur, who commanded the center. The right wing consisted of Mongol detachments and their Christian allies, Georgians, Armenians, with the hospitallers. Facing them in the center was Sultan Kalawun and his Mamluks army. On his right was the Damascene army led by Emir Lajin. On his left, the former rebel Sunkur Alashkar, commanding an army of northern Syrians and Turkmen. The two armies clashed at dawn. The Mongol left wing launched a ferocious attack on the Damascene army. The right wing of the Muslims was rocked to the core, but it held firm under the mounting pressure. The Mongol right wing attacked Sunkur Alashkar's men. The Muslim left wing crumbled, taking flight, pursued by a detachment of Mongols. The fleeing Muslims reached as far as Damascus, Gaza, and even Egypt. Seeing the fleeing Muslims brought despair to the Muslim populations in the region. They assumed the worst. The right wing of the Mongols continued to pursue, killing all soldiers and civilians and looting all the villages and cities they encountered. Much of the pursuing Mongol army regrouped at the Lake of Homs, where they waited, expecting the rest of the army to join them. Back on the battlefield... Fighting continued to rage fiercely. Having survived an initial assault from the Mongols, a group of emirs in the Mamluk right wing launched a ferocious counterattack. The Mongol left wing was unable to sustain its impact. It gave way, opening a path to the center of the Mongol army. Mangu Timur saw a column of Muslims heading in his direction. He panicked and was thrown from his horse. Mongol horsemen in the center dismounted, forming a protective circle around their leader. The Mamluks saw the Mongols dismount. That was all the impetus they needed. They charged the protective circle. The Mongols grabbed their injured leader and fled the battlefield. Fear 
had entered the hearts of the Mongols. Plagued by hunger, thirst, and exhaustion, the Mongols split up into small groups, each trying desperately to make its own way out of the Muslim heartland. The Mamluks chased the Mongols like lions on the hunt. This time the Mongols would pay for their cruelty. Pursued relentlessly, many of the Mongols drowned in the river Euphrates. Others hid in the reeds on the banks of the river. The Mamluks set fire to the reed beds, smoking out their prey, slaughtering whoever emerged. Muslim garrisons that spied Mongols passing by also went on the attack. The historian Al-Mansuri writes that more Mongols were killed in the retreat than in the battle itself. Kalawun, victorious at Hims, resolves to take revenge from all parties that took to the battlefield against the Muslims. In 1283, he crushed the stronghold of the Christian Maronites. Two years later, he smashed the fortress of Markab, the home of the Hospitaller Knights. In 1289, he attacked Tripoli with the help of Syrian armies, storming, then destroying the city. Kalawun's goal was to take the last Christian stronghold in the Middle East, Accra. But he died in 1290, leaving the task to his son, Al-Ashraf Khalil. The young sultan had 92 siege engines arrayed against Accra, and the city's walls mined in four separate places. Accra did not stand very long. The Muslims showed no mercy to the inhabitants of Accra. They were massacred in large numbers, and on the sultan's command, it was razed to the ground. The historian Abul Fida narrates, After the conquest of Accra, Allah struck fear into the hearts of the Franks still remaining on the Syrian coast. Thus did they precipitately evacuate Saida, Beirut, Tyre, and all the other towns. The sultan, therefore, had the good fortune, shared by none other, of easily conquering all those strongholds which he immediately had dismantled. Al-Ashraf destroyed all Christian fortresses along the length of the entire coast, just in case the Franks ever thought of returning to the Orient. Abul Fida concludes, With these conquests, all the lands of the coast were fully returned to the Muslims, a result undreamed of. Thus were the Franks, who had nearly conquered Damascus, Egypt, and many other lands, expelled from all of Syria and the coastal zones. Allah grant that they never set foot there again. Amin. It was almost 200 years ago in Clermont, France, that Pope Urban II called out to the kings of Europe to rid the infidel from holy lands. The Crusades were supposed to be holy expeditions, an opportunity for the sinning Christian to redeem himself and to win eternal salvation. However, beneath the superficial layers of piety and God-consciousness lurked an insatiable bloodlust and the fervent desire to plunder the legendary riches of the East. These were not holy men. Is this the kind of holy war the Pope had envisaged? Interestingly, Many an historian has attributed the failure of the Crusades to the lack of leadership, poor knowledge of the land, and primitive tactics of the Franks. But in this discourse, we rarely hear praise of the Muslim nation's achievements in raising the likes of Nur al-Din Zengi, Salahuddin Ayyubi, Shirkuh, and the countless others who sacrificed their lives and their wealth 
to protect their religion and their people from extermination. Surely the failure of the Crusades was due to the spirit of Islam? For Allah empowers those who are sincere to Him with the ability and the motivation to face extraordinary challenges. Conclusion It is difficult for us today to imagine the horrors that the Muslim Ummah endured at the hands of the Mongol horde. With all the death and destruction that plagues us today, it still does not compare to the kind of animal savagery that was unleashed on our ancestors. Al-Jazari, a contemporary Muslim historian, estimates that between 5 and 10 million Muslims perished as a result of the Crusades and the subsequent Mongol invasions. The Iraqi city of Dayala was home to 900,000 Muslims at the time of the Abbasid Khilafah. Under Mongol rule in 1300, it was only 60,000. Certain areas of Syria and Palestine, home to 4 million Muslims, were reduced to 600,000. These numbers testify to the extent of the horrors that befell the Muslims. One would think that in the face of annihilation, the leaders of the Muslim Ummah would come together, leaving behind their personal rivalries and petty conflicts, but history tells us otherwise. Those leaders who abandoned the religion of Allah for the short-lived desires of the world were not leaders at all. Instead, they were slaves of the material world. Fear had entered their hearts, so they could not face their own enemies and the enemies of Islam. Instead, they took refuge in the world of fantasy. That was their palaces, with their myriad concubines, dancing girls, and their legions of servants. How ironic is it that the Khalifa of Baghdad could not bring himself to spend the wealth he had hoarded in his own defense? And reflect on the actions of the Sultan of Syria, who spent those vitally important hours crafting lines of poetry rather than organizing his army to resist an impending massacre that would seal his own fate and that of his people. Did these leaders not know what fate awaited them if the Mongols were allowed to enter into their cities? Certainly they knew from the stories of rape and pillage whispered around them. But they were helpless because fear had entered their hearts. And that is the nature of fear. It paralyzes its victim. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, The people will soon summon one another to attack you, as people, when eating, invite others to share their food. Someone asked, Will that be because of our small numbers at that time? He replied, No, you will be numerous at that time, but you will be froth, like that carried down by a torrent of water. And Allah will take the fear of you from the breasts or hearts of your enemy and cast awakhin into your hearts. Someone asked, O Messenger of Allah, what is awakhin? He replied, Love of the world and dislike of death. For the Muslim, there is a great lesson to be learned from the response of the Khalifa of Baghdad upon learning of the impending invasion of the Mongol horde. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, calls the disease afflicting the Khalifa awakhin, love of this world, and dislike of death. Contrast the response of the Khalifa to that of Qutuz, the Sultan of Egypt, on that fateful day when he was faced with a choice to submit to the Mongols or fight for the survival of the Ummah. 
If no one else will come, I will go and fight the Tatars alone. The difference between these two leaders is the condition of their heart. Wasn't Kutuz fearful of the impending fate of his people and himself? Certainly. But it is the Sunnah of Allah to respond to those believers who face monumental challenges by strengthening their heart. As Allah reassured the heart of Musa when he confronted the evil Pharaoh of his time, Allah said to Musa, Do not fear, because I am with you. I hear and I see. The Muslim Ummah was on the verge of extinction, but Allah raised from among the most unlikely of people pagan Turkish slaves, mighty warriors, believing in him and worshipping him to confront the enemy of Islam on behalf of the Muslim Ummah. The Mamluks were slaves, many of whom did not speak a word of Arabic, but ironically, it was the institution of slavery that allowed Mamluks to forge a powerful bond with each other without being distracted by tribal or family loyalties. The Mamluks prepared for battle with the Mongols to their best ability through their intelligence networks and their rigorous training, and they expended their effort without reservation. Baybars and Kutuz, despite their mutual rivalry, put aside their differences because their commitment to Allah and his religion superseded their personal issues. This is a great lesson for all of us, especially those in leadership positions today. The Mamluks rallied against the Mongols with confidence that Allah would grant them victory. On that day, history took a mighty turn. Allah took away fear of the Mongols from the hearts of the Muslims and put fear of the Muslims in the hearts of their enemies. And the tide of battle turned as it did in the Crusades. The myth of Mongol invincibility was shattered forever. The Muslim nation broke free from the shackles of hopelessness and misery to pursue the Mongols and the Crusaders out of Muslim lands. In granting the Mamluk army victory of the Mongols, Allah fulfilled his promise to his prophet that the Ummah of Muhammad would never be defeated by an external enemy. The significance of this confrontation can be seen from the words of the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in the following hadith. Abu Huraira reported Allah's messenger, may peace be upon him, as saying, You shall fight in the hours to come against a nation wearing shoes made of hair and faces like hammered shields with red complexion and small eyes. Guidance is with Allah, and He can change the hearts of even the most savage people and make them beneficial for humanity. Once the Mongols converted to Islam, they served the religion by spreading knowledge building mosques, and pushing the boundaries of Islam further into Asia. We have seen this before with the Arabs of pre-Islamic times and the conversions Umar bin Khattab and Khalid bin Walid. This is another miracle of Allah. Allah the Most High says in the Quran, Have you not seen the end of those who were before you? Surely the way of Allah will not change, nor in the way of Allah will be alteration. In the accounts of history, we recognize those to whom Allah grants victory. Whether it be Qutuz or Bebers or Nuruddin Zengi, Salahuddin Ayubi, or Sultan Muhammad Fateh, as we described in previous presentations on the Crusades and the conquest of Constantinople, they are all crafted from the same mold. 
We can easily distinguish them from the many impostors that call to themselves instead of Allah. The sincere leaders surround themselves with true scholars of Islam, and they strive to implement every sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Their lack of concern for their own well-being manifests itself in their austere lifestyle. But their hearts are full of compassion and tolerance for the poor and the downtrodden. Their souls seek comfort in the long prostration in the middle of the night and in the clashing of swords in the heat of battle. These are the kinds of men that cleanse the Ummah. By educating the masses, they rid the nation of Islam of its Ridwans and Dukak. And they are the ones that liberate Jerusalem. These are the heroes of Islam. May Allah accept their deeds and grant them the highest level of paradise. Amin. Our Lord, bestow on us endurance, establish our feet firmly, and give us help against those that resist faith. And we pray that Allah protects us from such trials in the future. Our Lord, make us not a trial for those who disbelieve, but forgive us, our Lord, for you are the mighty, the wise. That is it for the Crusades, the Mongol Scourge. Hope you're enjoying the story. Can I ask that you leave a review and rating wherever you listen and to share the podcast with your family and friends. We are on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and we're also on YouTube as a voice-only channel. Do join our Islamic Audio Bites community on Facebook and Instagram and follow me on Twitter. We've also got a website. Please do check it out at islamicaudiobites.com. If you'd like to contact me directly, please do so at sisterb007 at gmail.com. As always, hope your day is full of goodness. Assalamu alaikum.